This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Oh, man. Well, as a lot of you are probably aware of, about a week and a half ago, we had no running water in the house. And so I had spent a little bit of time living out of a hotel here in Greater Westchester. <laughs> and, um, and so we had a well company come out, and they had repaired um, a pump on our well. And yet as they left, though, I heard horrifying news when they had said that now it's up to you to fulfill the most important part of this process. You need, you need to get all of the chlorine out of the water. And so I'm looking at them like, see, I'm not exactly a handyman here. In fact, my specialty is in destroying things, breaking things, and demolition. But you want me to get the chlorine out of the water, and I don't know what that means. How do I get the chlorine out of the water? Show me how to do that. And I'm so glad that I asked that question because he had a very long, very succinct list, very clear 12-step instructions of how to get the chlorine out of the water. And somehow, even though I'm not much of a Johnny Fix-It, somehow I got it done. I think, maybe, but regardless... I experienced that really the, the exact same is also true in the world of preaching. Now, as a lot of you also know, I came into this very unexpectedly, where I came at it very early on out of a writer's perspective, how I would always love to write, but I never spoke growing up. You know, every single week with a 12-page novella of, of, I mean, word-for-word notes, and it, and it started off very, very good that way, but I discovered that, that on a weekly basis, that, I mean, it was just so stressful, feeling like every word has to be immaculate and, and completely perfect. Well, a few years ago, while we lived in Florida, a friend of mine whose name is Brad, who's also a minister there in Ocala, Florida, I noticed how whenever he would speak, this is all that he would go up with. I mean, it was one page handwritten map, more or less, of everything that he would say. And I saw him doing that, and I thought, I want to preach just like that. And so I went to him. He was very kind and generous. And I asked him, show me how to do this. And a couple of years later, now in the process, here is what, what I, I have in my, my hand right here. And it's a lot less stressful here this way. And yet he had shown me how to do this. Likewise, when we had arrived here a year or so ago, I was tasked with, with them our webpage every single week. And I knew that it would be my responsibility every single week to update our webpage. Only problem with that is that I'm not exactly a webmaster. I don't know anything about creating websites. But it's a good thing because I just so happen to, to actually know a person who is very skilled, whose very job is creating websites. And she has hundreds and hundreds of all kinds of how-to videos on YouTube and on Skillshare of exactly how to make a website. And that specifically is how I learned how to make a website. And yet as we come into Matthew chapter 6, we continue where we left off last week as Jesus speaks about prayer. Now we remember how on one occasion in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 11, there is one of the apostles who approaches Jesus and says, Lord, show us how to pray. 
we notice that the way that you are praying is not at all like the way anybody else is praying. And so, Lord, teach us how to pray just like you. And the way that Jesus is responding to, to that demand is an abbreviated version of what we find here in Matthew chapter 6 in its entirety. Here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is explaining, this is how a follower of mine ought to, to pray. As we pick up at verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then once again, he's, uh, he speaks about forgiveness as he says, For if you forgive others for, for um, their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will also not forgive you of your transgressions. And so it's no longer pray like the scribes and the Pharisees. No longer pray like, like, like all of those who use meaningless repetitions. But now what we find here is really a tutorial. It is a, a really how-to of how to pray just like Jesus prayed. And this, I am discovering, is, is one of the absolute, if not the most vital thing, which is pertaining to our spiritual longevity and survival as praying just like Jesus prayed. Now, a lot of times as we, we approach what we refer to as, as the Lord's Prayer, there are some misconceptions, it seems like, in our country. Now, I want to eliminate one of those misconceptions. Jesus is not saying that, that this is the only words that we should ever offer up to God as we are praying. This was not the only prayer that we find Jesus ever saying to, to um, his Father. And if we're not careful, we can take this and we can make it a vain repetition, which completely is defeating what Jesus is really trying to, to um, really instill within us. I found it very interesting in this past week how, how very early on in church history, they, they had a document called the Didache. And what the Didache was, it was about 20 years after Christ's resurrection, where all of the, the, the ancient Christians had this. And what it said was, pray like this. It makes reference to this specific prayer, Matthew 6. And it says, pray like this, um, and do so three times a day. And I want us to, to all notice where, where specifically Jesus starts in our prayer in our text. Let's notice how Jesus begins his prayer with reverence. You see, reverence really is what separates Christian prayer from everything else that is offered to us in our world other than Christ Jesus. Because when we see Jesus praying with reverence, we see our Lord and Savior speaking to, to his Father in a very personal and in a very intimate way, showing that they have this, this extremely intimate correspondence with each other. Notice how he begins with, with, with who exactly our Father is. Where he, 
he lists his identity and he says, our Father who is in heaven. And so when we start a prayer with, with our Father, that right off the bat also establishes our own identity because when we say our Father, we are recognizing our own selves as what? As sons, as daughters, as helpless infants reaching up out of the crib to their own Father for guidance and for nourishment and for love and affection. This is what we do every single time that we pray in this way to our Father. And so he says who he is. Notice he also says where he is. Our Father who is in heaven. I don't know what, what is going through your mind as you all hear that. Our Father who is in heaven. And yet I think this is a, yet another occasion where, where our 21st century American ears are simply deaf to, to, to just how beautiful this really is. Now, as he says, our Father who is in heaven, another way of translating this is our Father who is in the heavens. It's a word which means air. It means the atmosphere. It also means spiritual heavens. But what is so interesting about this is that in the first century um, Hebraic world, they had a concept of what the heavens were, at least in a three-tier sense. How it means, in one case, it, it means the skies above is the heaven. But another meaning of that word, understanding of that word in first century Hebrew culture is also on the earth beneath. Our Father who is in the heaven, our Father who is here on the earth beneath, are also our Father who is here in the waters which are, are here below us. And I fear that that when we hear our Father who is in heaven, perhaps what is running through a lot of our, our minds is that God is, is very absent from me right now. God is far, far away from me, and he probably doesn't even have any time to even care about what I'm saying right now because, well, other people have it much, much worse than, than I am inclined to have it. And yet we can learn a lot from what we hear King David say. Or he says, where can I go from your spirit, O God? Or where can I flee from your presence? And then notice all three of these, these um, Hebrew usages and understandings of, of what the heavens are, are all represented here. If I ascend into heaven, or other words, into the skies, you are already there, O God. If I make my bed way down in Sheol, behold, you are even there. If I take to the wings of the dawn up above, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea underneath, even there, your hand would be very strong in order to, to lead me. And on your right hand, it will lay hold of me. In other words, what King David is expressing here in Psalm 139 is that God is everywhere we are. That there is nowhere, no low place that we can ever sink to where he cannot find us be and actually be present with us and to lift our souls up in hope. And in fact, if there could be anybody who would understand this more, it should be us. And that's because we are living now in a time where God is even closer to his people than he was then. As he looks at us now, all of us in the church, and he says, he describes us as God's holy temple where his very spirit is dwelling every single moment of our lives with us. 
So it is not God is, is, is far away or that he's an absentee God way off somewhere in the heavens. But rather he is right here with us at all times. How Dallas Willard writes in his book about Sermon on the Mount, he says, unfortunately, the old standard formulation of our Father who art in heaven has, has come to mean our Father who is far away and much later on. But the omission of the plural usage, heaven, robs us of the wording in the model prayer of the sense Jesus truly intended for, for all of us to, to all capture. And what that sense is this, our Father who is always near us. This is so much more an accurate translation of what Jesus really is trying to emphasize. Our Father who is always, always with us when we pray. And so that is who he is and where he is. And yet also notice in the text, Jesus explains what his name is. As he says, hallowed be your name. And again, I don't know about you, but that is another one of those words that just makes me scratch my head. Hallowed. I mean, when was the last time in mid-conversation you had said hallowed to anybody else? I mean, it just seems like one of those, those very old very archaic words. I mean, hollowed. Is he speaking about Halloween? Is Jesus speaking about Reese's peanut butter cups and Halloween mask when he says this? I mean, what in the world does, does it mean when he says, hallowed be your name? Well, in the original language, here is what this word means. It is a very special word reserved when you want to, to treat something as absolutely holy and majestic. It means that you are setting something apart and announcing that, that of everything else in the world, there is nothing like this thing or this person right here. And notice what Jesus says is hallowed here. It is God's name. God's name is far above all of the other names in this world around us. It's what we see all the way back in the book of Exodus as, as Moses asked God a question. He says, okay, so God, you want me to go into Egypt and confront Pharaoh, right? Well, yes. Okay, but what if Pharaoh asked me what the name of my God is? I mean, what do I even call you? I mean, he had no idea back then. And then in the Hebrew language, what he hears God say is a Yah, a Shur, a Yah which in Hebrew means I am who I am. Also, it can be translated, I will be who I will be has sent you. And what this means is that if he asks what the name of your God is, you let him know I am God. I am the only God, a name and a God who, who cannot be fully comprehended by, by anybody but God himself. And so right off the bat, what we see Jesus, how he starts this prayer it really speaks against what the scribes and Pharisees had so tragically been, been guilty of all that time. Where when they would pray and fast and give, they had a completely wrong image of who God was and who they were. But when we start a prayer like this, from the very start, the very first thing coming out of our own mouths as we pray, is what we're saying in other words is that God, you are in control. God, I am a helpless infant and I need your power and your strength and your help in my life. It is confidence that, that our God is in control 
And that no matter what is going on in this, this crazy world around us, God always has the last word in the matter. And so we begin in reverence, but then also notice how Jesus, he transitions. And now he speaks about request. And if you're anything like, like, like I've been for a very long time, this is usually what my entire prayer has consisted of. Where you look at prayer as if you are more or less at the mall at Christmas time. You hop up on the lap of Santa Claus and say, Ooh, I want this and I want that and give me this and give me that and I want that and I want one of those and I want three of those. And, and it, notice though how Jesus speaks about our requests now. One of them is a physical need of ours, which is food. And yet the other two are, 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 are necessities of a spiritual manner. He says, first of all, give us this day our daily bread. And I imagine everybody who is standing there, immediately their Israelite forefathers out in the wilderness. And now every single day, day after day, God is, is giving them manna out of, out of his heavens. And it notice though how he says, give us this specific day, our, our daily bread. And I got to confess, this is very foreign in our American minds because we are more accustomed to, in this age of, of um, on the Costco and Sam's Club, maybe our, our weekly bread. And yet, really, what Jesus is referring to here is a day, one day at a time, dependence upon God. God, get me through this specific day right here. And I trust that you are going to provide for me one day at a time. And then he moves to, to our spiritual needs and necessities then. He speaks about our absolute need and necessity of forgiveness. Where he says, forgive us of our debts. And it doesn't matter who we are this morning. Every single one of us have wronged other people and wronged our God. And likewise, every single one of us also have been wronged by other people. This is why, as Jesus speaks about prayer elsewhere, he says that, that, that every time that you pray, whenever you are praying, it doesn't matter if you pray 20 times a day, forgive other people and ask God for forgiveness, you yourself. Then he also mentions a phrase that it's kind of strange to our ears as well, as he says, do not lead us into temptation. Well, what are you saying, Jesus? Are you saying that, that sometimes God tries to get us to commit sin? Is that what that means? Well, as we know in James chapter 1, it says that, that God does not tempt, and that he does not come to us trying to um, allure us as the devil does. And yet a closer look at this specific word of temptation. In the original language, what this means more is of, a, of affliction and of a test of our faith, which is, after all, what, what all of our, our adversity is. It's why God allowed Abraham to, to go all the way up to that altar with his son Isaac. It's why, in response to our world's number one, one question about why they don't love God is because why do bad things happen in this world to us? Largely, I would say the main reason why so often so much affliction comes our way is because God wants to develop in us a true, lasting faith, which is grounded and which is nuanced. 
So he says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I mean, he's speaking to first century people who are afflicted and who are enslaved, more or less, under, the, under a Roman regime. So really what he is articulating here is a cry of protection from God. Please, please protect us from day to day and deliver us from, from any kind of evil whatsoever. When we pray just like this, what we are really saying to our God more or less is, is God, I have wronged you and other people. And I need compassion every minute of my life. I need mercy and I need rescue when these afflictions come into my life. And yet it's interesting because notice how at the very end of this prayer, after already speaking about reverence and request, Jesus returns once again and he speaks reverently in his prayer. As he concludes and he says, for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever. Amen, he says. See, this is the complete opposite of the prayer of a Pharisee. Whenever most of the Pharisees prayed, in their own eyes, they were the gatekeepers of the kingdom. They were the ones who were to receive all of the glory and the power and the majesty. But here's Jesus saying, no, when you pray, do the opposite of that. And ascribe unto your, your heavenly Father all of the glory and all of the power forever. Not just now, but he says forever. And when we pray like this, this is something that continuously humbles us. It mesmerizes us about just, just how incredible this God of ours really is. It makes us more and more of a dependent child upon him. Amen. And yet even though we have gotten to the very end of this prayer, there is one last component of this prayer that, that so often goes completely overlooked. In fact, I never even knew that this was a component until maybe a year and a half ago. And that is that when we pray, it's not just God who has a responsibility now in response to our prayer. But you and I also have a role to play in this prayer. I mean, we are living in this age of any time that, that there is any kind of adversity in this world, an earthquake, a famine, any kind of a tragedy in or around our lives. We have almost been programmed as 21st century Americans to just regurgitate a phrase. And what is it? Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Prayers going up. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. And that is very well intentioned. And yet, if we could be very candid about that, it's absolutely worthless. It is absolutely worthless saying, God, go and do something about that. And I'll just wait for you to go and do something about that. But rather, what we find all over in the pages of New Testament scripture is that what Christian prayer actually is, is that God, this, this specific thing that, that I'm praying about is, is so awful in the world. Do something about it. But now use me. Give me the words Give me opportunities in my life so that I can be the answer to my own prayer. Amen. This is what true Christian prayer is. If we go up early on in this prayer, notice how Jesus says, your kingdom come. Now, 
it's been defined before in this series, but, but as a means of review, what the kingdom of God means is it is more or less God's, God's reign in heaven. And yet it's also God's reign upon the earth. How Dallas Willard also says that the gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die. And it's more about how to live in the kingdom of God before we're going to die. In other words, what Jesus is really, really expressing all throughout in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, is that as his followers, after he, he has gone away, it is now our responsibility to actually bring his kingdom down into this earth, into all of these, these lives who we're going to encounter. Notice how he also says, your will be done. And then he says, not just in heaven, but also, he says, on earth. Let your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. And we remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? How his number one temptation in that moment, he says it three times out loud. God, if there's any way that you can get me away from that cross... Or as, as specifically as he says it, please let this cup pass away from me. But all three times he keeps going back to a statement, but not my will, but let your will be done. And this is what I have fallen in love with concerning prayer in the past year and a half. Did you know that the very meaning of the word prayer, that the most literal definition of that word prayer means to exchange wishes? When we pray, we are exchanging human wishes. And so you see, prayer is so much more than just merely us speaking to our God. When we pray, we are undergoing a very sacred art, a very sacred process of entering into the conversion of human wishes, which are to be molded into the God's, God's divine will. Prayer is one of those, those very important places where our desires become his desires, where our worry slowly but surely turns into worship, where our hatred for other people eventually becomes love for those people, where our anxiety now becomes peace, where God, I can't do this, now becomes, but you can do this, and you can do it through me. A lot of times Amanda and I have gone to other countries and we discovered at the airport that, that we could not use our American currency. And so if we wanted to actually eat and to have a place to stay, we would have to, to then convert and to replace our very familiar American currency with, with the strangest, most foreign-looking money that we've ever seen in our entire lives. This is what we do when we pray. As we go to God, we, we have lust in our hearts sometimes. We have pride, we have worry, we have fear, we have doubt. And yet, if we will just pray exactly as Jesus is explaining right here, we are replacing all of those venoms and toxins. And now he is giving us foreign beauty into our lives. Love and peace, kindness and goodness, gentleness and so forth. See, the thing about prayer is that prayer is where minds and hearts and attitudes are changed. 
When we pray, we are silently saying to our God, God, I want you to, to renovate and to revolutionize my heart. And so we see in prayer that, that it's much less us barking our wish list to a cosmic Santa Claus. And it's so much more about us replacing our human desires with the impulses and with the will of the living God. And the more that we remind ourselves audibly who our God is, our Father who is in, in the heavens, hallowed be your name and so forth, the more that, that his way of thinking is slowly but surely going to, 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 to start becoming that way that, that you and I now are thinking. And the more we will find our, our anxiety, our fear, our lust, our bigotry and prejudice slowly but surely shrink and shrivel away until now that is no longer even a part of who we are. Prayer is the place where that happens in the very first sense. Jesus says, hallowed be your name. And what this means is that for better or for worse, every minute of the day, God's name is being, being announced in the streets of, of our world, for better or for worse though. What Jesus is saying is that everywhere that we go as his followers, we are announcing God's name. And that name must be a very hallowed name. It must be set apart to everybody as saying, this is not just any ordinary name in the way in which we are to live. And I close with this specific thought this morning. How we find in Acts chapter 4... We see the very early church doing exactly what Jesus had said. John and Peter have just been threatened, beaten, warned, never even speak the name of Jesus ever again in, um, in the rest of your life. Yet notice what they do as they, they, they rejoin their, their Christian brothers and sisters. Acts 4 and verse 23 says that when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, notice, they lifted up their, their voices to God with one accord. And notice how, how their prayer begins in reverence, just as Jesus had laid out. How they say, O oh, oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And so they begin reverently. And yet, if we could drop down to verse 29, though, notice how they make their request, but they also say, Lord, bring this about in we ourselves in this world. Let us be the answer to our own prayer. Or in verse 29, it says, and now, Lord, take note of their threats, request, and yet responsibility then, as we see, and grant that your bondservants, in other words, and grant that we ourselves may speak your word with all confidence. Then notice how in verse 30, they, they are concluding this specific prayer again in reverence. As they say, while you extend your, your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. In other words, what they may as well have been saying is, for, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And when this first century church prayed, just like Jesus said how we should pray, notice what the outcome is in verse 31. That when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered there together was shaken. 
That's a powerful word in the original language. It was shaking. It was reverberating on the walls. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with all boldness. They were the answer to their own prayers, ladies and gentlemen. This is how Jesus says we are all to pray. And so as we bring all of this to a close this morning, I just have two very quick challenges for us. Number one, as I've already said, as much as you can, have three reminders on your phone every single day. And just pray with reverence, with request, and then with reverence. It doesn't matter how long it is, that we just pray reverently in request and again in reverence. And then, especially, most importantly, that we ask ourselves the question, whatever it is that we're praying to God for, that we ask Him, how can I be a living answer to my own prayer in this world? Give me the wisdom and the imagination, God. Give me the opportunities and the words to say. And we will be amazed at just how much more we enjoy and love the Christian life than we do this morning. Our gospel invitation, I just want us all to do something very unusual. If everybody could just stand. And I want us all to begin in our week praying this specific prayer here together. And yet I would like to, to also do something unusual and to pray this prayer very slowly. And to really think about each of these, these words of this prayer. And so our Father, always near us, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.